Well, your bulletin says uh, that the sermon is by Pastor Nick Locke's spiritual understanding. Now, he did a great job with that last week, but we're not going to do a reprise. So uh, my name is Tom Gastel, and uh, the sermon today is titled uh, The Cross-Shaped Kingdom. So let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this amazing passage. Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word. We thank you for this stunning passage here at the center of Mark, the turning point. We pray that as you um, show us the way of the cross, that we would see their life and liberty and freedom and joy, that we would see and experience Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our lives are filled with all sorts of questions. Some of them are mundane. What do you want for dinner tonight? What color should we paint the house? Actually, that one may not be mundane. Uh, Some are very meaningful. Will you marry me? And some are magical and sweet. My two-year-old granddaughter, Amelia, said to her dad last night, my son Garrett, as they were outside in Idaho, it was cold. Daddy, can you grab the clouds and bring them down to me? All of our hearts melted, all the heart melting emojis. I didn't have the heart to say to him, she's melting you so that you might give her ice cream later. (laughs) She's melting you so that down the road she can say, Daddy, can you give me a car? (laughs) There are all sorts of questions in life that we deal with, but the most important question of all is who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Now everyone has an opinion about this. I've known people, you have known people who are fine talking about, about Jesus at a theoretical level. His importance in history, his teaching, his uniqueness. But then so often people want to shirk the question by not answering personally. But friends, how you answer this question, how I answer it, determines our eternity. We answer with our lips and our lives. You see, up until this point in Mark 1-7, to we have been seeing Jesus' authority over the storms, over the demons, over sickness. He has been showing us His power. But now we've come to the turning point of this whole Gospel. Here where the disciples begin to come to grips with Jesus as king, understanding his mission and what kind of kingship he actually is bringing. This passage is the whole crux of the matter. So we're going to look at a few questions here and understanding not only what Jesus means and who he is for the disciples and for that time, but of course also for us. So first, who do you think Jesus is? Peter's confession. He asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And and they answer, you know, all the crowd's opinions. John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. And then he moves from wide-angle lens and that perspective of the crowd's opinion to a personal close-up of what the disciples actually think. Who do you say that I am? Peter says speaking on behalf of the others, you are the Christ. In other words, 
the divinely anointed and appointed leader and deliverer of God's people. And then Jesus says, well done, don't tell this to anyone. <laughs> and, and when you're reading this, you think, huh, what in the world? Isn't Peter supposed to shout it from the rooftops? Well, this here is what scholars have called for centuries the messianic secret of Mark's gospel. What does that mean? The reason Jesus doesn't want Mark yet, or rather Peter yet, to define or to go out and tell people what this means is that Jesus, not the crowds, not Peter, Jesus has to define what being Messiah means. And if that gets away from him, then it spells real trouble. You see, Jesus can't and won't let their expectations or our expectations set his agenda and frame his mission. And yet, friends, so often we want to do this. We, we think of Jesus as our life coach. You know, how he can improve us and, and how he can be there when we need him, when we're not feeling well, when we're sad, when we're scared, or, or we need him to fill our emotional vacuum in our lives. Now, he does these things to some degree, but he's far more than this. Or more to the point of the passage, it is so easy for Jesus to, or for people to think of Jesus as a political ruler. And that's really what's taking place in this passage. You see, Peter and the others wanted to commingle the mission of Jesus with the aims of the state. That the Messiah of Israel was to come and to conquer her oppressors, to overthrow the Romans, and so forth. Now, this is a sensitive subject, and, and we're going to plunge into it, but there's some things being written about part of what we are seeing, perhaps, in, in Ukraine, and this horrific, catastrophic invasion could be partly a warped view in Russia of Christendom and its advance. There's a motto in Russia that says, we are to love our homeland, our people, our land, our army. And it's Christian leaders who are saying that. Recently, there was a cathedral built dedicated to the army of Russia. And in this view, Christendom advances by power and conquest. But friends, we in the West are not off the hook on this. This is very convicting as I've been reading about it. You see, it's so easy for Christians on the left and the right in our country to, to baptize Christianity with our party platforms, to turn Jesus into a mascot for the Republicans or for the Democrats, to, to take his kingdom and mix it up with nationalism and militarism and so forth. And then we're doing the exact kind of thing as Christians in the West that Jesus is criticizing and that we're seeing carried out with disastrous consequences around the world right now. Well, Peter, when he says, you are the Christ, you are the, the anointed one, he is affirming that God poured out his spirit to set Christ apart as the king of his people. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Peter is beginning to get there. Peter is beginning to put it all together. That's why this is the turning point. 
In the passage before ours in Mark 8, 22 to 26, we find a beautiful miracle where Jesus touches a blind man. He touches his eyes, he puts his hands in, in mud, in dirt, and he puts it on the man's eyes to heal him. And the man begins to see, but he, Jesus asks him what he sees, and he says, well, trees as though they're walking. So the point is he's beginning to see the world, but there's a deeper spiritual point. What Mark is saying is that he's beginning to see Jesus. Peter is also beginning to see Jesus, but their vision is hazy. You see, it takes time for us to see Jesus. We understand him, but then he needs to open our eyes and clarify our vision of him, and that's what he is graciously doing for Peter. This is not a rebuke, at least at this point, but a gracious opening of the eyes of the lead disciple. And friends, by extension, Jesus is saying to you and me, who do you say that I am? He calls us out. He asks us that most important question. It can be very tempting for us to, to ride the Christian coattails of others. To say that, well, you know, others have confessed Christ on my behalf. My parents believe. Uh, you know, I've always gone to church. Christianity is part of my legacy. It's part of my family tree. Again, part of what we're hearing right now in geopolitical events is Christianity is part of the land in certain places. But Jesus asks you, who do you Say that I am. It's wonderful that you were baptized as a baby. It's wonderful that you were raised in the church. Now, who do you say that I am? You know, I really had to confront this question in my own life. I was raised in a Christian home, very involved in a Christian church, a strong church. But in many ways, it was easy to sort of ride the faith of all my youth leaders, my youth pastors, People around me, my parents, the ministers who preached on Sundays, the worship leaders. But I had to be confronted with the question, who do you, at 13 years old, who do you say that I am? And so one summer, actually every summer, I went up to Forest Home Christian Conference Center, a nearby camp, and I remember hearing one night in particular the junior high camp director who was gravely ill. In fact, he was slowly dying of MS. And he would limp up there with his crutches year after year as he got worse. But he passionately shared the gospel and he passionately sang a song with all that he had, with so much conviction. And it has rung in my heart ever since. His song said, who do you think he is, this man Jesus? Who do you think he is? Well, that's the question that I have to keep answering according to the word of God, and so do you. So who is Jesus? We've looked at that a bit, but what is his course? Here we see that Jesus has to define his messiahship, what it means that he is king. 
Now let me step back for a moment and say that geography matters in Mark's gospel. It matters. And we are told that Jesus is teaching these things in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. Now in that area, there was a, a new uh, altar dedicated to the newest pagan god, the Roman emperor. So what is Jesus doing here? He is announcing God's kingdom as a challenge to Rome itself. And that is an amazing thing in that context. But he's saying, I am bringing a kind of rival kingdom, yet not in the way that my people expect, not in the way that the world expects. So in verse 31, Jesus then explains what what his kingship means. Now next week we're going to look a little more at what the Son of Man means. But today we'll simply hear what Jesus says. The Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, that is the church leaders, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will miss him, even as they look at the law that points to him. And he will be killed, and after three days he will rise again. Now this is an astonishing statement. You see, what we're finding here is that the reign of God in Jesus, the very kingdom and rule of God, is woven together, friends, with the atoning work of Christ. Now we understand that a little better, But for them, this was a total shock. Later on, though, there's a beautiful first century document known as the Epistle of Barnabas. And it said this, reflecting what Jesus says here, the kingdom of of Jesus is based on the wooden cross. Very simple. The kingdom of Jesus is based on the wooden cross. Now, this is not simply a message of no pain, no gain, but rather it's it's more profound. It is saying the Messiah will win by seeming to lose. Now, imagine what a shock that was to Peter. Um, My team just won the Super Bowl. I didn't watch that game and say, I hope they lose. I'm going to root for them to lose. That makes no sense in any sphere of life for us. In business, in school, in athletics, we want to win. But Jesus is saying that he will dole out the blessings of God's reign by absorbing the curse of rejection for sinners. By seeming to lose, God will bring victory. Now, Jesus says he must suffer, and and the word must is very important. It's easy just to overlook this. It's a word of divine necessity. Jesus is saying that if he doesn't suffer for us, then we would have suffered forever. Why? Because sin always entails a penalty, a payment. Someone had to pay somewhere, somehow for our infractions. And Jesus is saying, I will pay it all. And in that paying, I will bring victory. You see, it was the Father's plan to give a king 
who would submit himself to the hardest road imaginable. And no wonder Jesus' followers couldn't yet fully fathom what he meant. Now again, friends, I want to show you, and I've been struck by this this week, that, that this just brings to the surface how true Christianity is. Because what a What a way of defining kingship and what a contrast to what we're literally seeing in the news every single day and what every commentator is talking about right now. In Putin, we see an authoritarian man taking to himself, consuming, devouring, invading, killing. And so many kings throughout history have been that way, but King Jesus takes an opposite approach. He gives himself fully. He conquers not by sacrificing others, but by sacrificing himself. Who would have invented this but God? You see, Peter is getting there, but he's only seeing trees as though they're walking around. It's taking him a while to process process this. Jesus is saying that he will rule by relinquishing himself and humbling himself. And so this led Augustine to say later in the fourth century, I love this, the Lord has established his sovereignty from a tree. Who is it who fights with wood? Christ from his cross, he has conquered kings. Not with the military, not with guns, not with rockets, not with helicopters, but he conquers from his cross. He fights with wood. Well, Peter's got a ways to go. (laughs) He really does. And he is appalled by Jesus' misinterpretation of it all, isn't he? And so Peter pulls Jesus aside to set him straight. We are told that he rebukes Jesus. Now, the word rebuke is an extremely strong one. It is what Jesus uses to speak against demons. So that tells you the kind of heat that Peter was bringing to this. Look, Jesus, look. You're not understanding Maybe he put his arm around him. You're missing the mission. Suffering and death? How can you speak of the Son of Man, the King of Israel, and defeat in the same sentence? And again, friends, we can't fault Peter. So often we think of Jesus that way today, and it's what the crowds were thinking of him then. In John 6, 15, we are told... Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him and make him king by force, he departed again to the mountain by himself all alone. You see, the mission, the agenda for the people is that the Messiah was supposed to conquer Rome, not allow himself to be conquered by the Romans on a wooden cursed cross. But you see, that road to triumph that Jesus was traveling had to make a major stop at Calvary 
And this still didn't make sense to Peter and others, although he was getting there. And this is a common notion today. I remember reading in a journal some years ago, and it was a, it was a Jewish writer, um, and he said, basically, he laid out the case that there is no way that Jesus can be a Messiah because he failed. Because he failed. Because crucifixion is a failure. And therefore, he can't be Messiah. A Buddhist scholar said, the figure of the crucified Christ is a very painful image to me. It does not contain joy or peace, and this does not do justice to Jesus. That's what Peter felt. Where's the joy and justice in what you're talking about? Well, Jesus is saying, my road to Calvary will bring justice. I will bear the just wrath of God, and in doing that, I will bring you joy. Unending joy. And so Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't it amazing? Peter's misunderstanding just seems so basic, but Jesus knows where this thinking is coming from. It is a satanic temptation to head straight to glory without humiliation. Satan already tempted Jesus with this circumventing the cross at the very beginning of Mark, didn't he? But Jesus counters with the truth about the Father's plan for him. Jesus is saying that he will ascend to his heavenly throne only after he first descends to the grave, only after he is lifted up on a cross. For him to become the enthroned king, he had to become the servant of the Lord who gives himself to us. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, and we're going to sing these words at the end of the service, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Now, friends, Peter knew Isaiah, but he hadn't yet put together that the suffering servant was the awesome king and deliverer, the son of man, the glorious figure that God was sending to the world. Those two things were merged as one. And Jesus is telling Peter, oh, Peter, Peter, dear one, the crown I will wear will be woven of thorns and that will bring and unleash the kingdom of joy. You see, the amazing thing is that King Jesus was worthy to be served more than any leader ever. And yet he said in Mark 10, and we'll look at this later, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. And so while the kingdoms of this world are so often built by force, the kingdom of God is founded on grace. It advances 
through the apparent weakness of a man, a king on a cross. But there we see the power of God. There we see the joy of God. And so, friends, everything from here on out in the second half of Mark begins to funnel toward Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem where he will be coronated through crucifixion. And yet, what Peter has to know, what we have to know, is that seeming defeat will be God's victory over sin and Satan and eventually death itself. So how does Jesus' mission affect ours? Well, he frames his road, or our road, by his. And calling the crowd with his disciples, he said, verse 34, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He's saying, I'm a king who will go to a cross And if you want to follow my road, you have to also take up your crosses. Now friends, Jesus' cross saves us. And our crosses are simply an expression of that salvation that he has won for us. And this is so important that we link together as he does his mission with ours. You see, the world tempts us to self-determination. But Jesus calls us to self-denial, literally to disown ourselves, to relinquish our so-called right to self-rule and to live by our own desires. That's what the world tells him. That's what the world is telling us. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we using Jesus for our own agendas? rather than submitting to his agenda? Are we thinking that Jesus exists to make us happy, to simply heal our diseases when we're not feeling good, to fix our families, to give us fulfilled lives? Now, in many ways, he does those things, but our lives are to be submitted to his agenda. And so discipleship means saying no to self and yes to Christ. And in verse 35 and following, Jesus teaches one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom that as we lose ourselves for him and his gospel, we end up finding ourselves. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. And then he gives us this warning, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his life? This was pictured for me when I was in high school. Um, My father uh, worked with some uh, salesmen and and, uh, folks in Connecticut General who who had done well. And uh, one night we, we went to one of his buddy's house, one of his houses, uh, it was in Hancock Park, and that's a nice neighborhood in L.A., and um, we were told that the house across the street from my parents' friend's house 
it, it, it was very distinctive because uh, it looked literally like a fortress. It had walls, it had gates, it had sirens. And, and we were told that this is a man that was older and had made a, a lot of money. Uh, he was secular. He, he didn't have any sort of Christian faith, it seemed. And I remember standing there on the street in Hancock Park and, and thinking of what Jesus teaches, that here is a man who is holding on to extraordinary wealth. But Jesus said, we lose it. The time will take it away if robbers don't. The time will, will rob our money, our accomplishments, our physical health. We can't hide behind our fortresses to try to hold on to our lives. Behind our fortresses will end up meaning that we lose them. And we can go further with this. In our culture, we are told that we are to build an identity on what we acquire. You know, on how fit we are, how, how young we look, how well put together our families and our houses are. And friends, I fall into this. You know, when my car it hasn't been washed in a while and I come here to church, I'm the one who parks over by the bushes so you don't see it. So that you don't see that I don't have everything together that week. You know, in our culture, we build our sense of self on our performance, on perfecting ourselves in sports and in music and academics, on being better than our competitors. One psychologist said this about student athletes in our area. There often is an intense pressure on student athletes to succeed. And that determines, this success does, an athlete and a student's identity and value. Well, our passage speaks to that. To that. Tim Keller interprets, interprets, excuse me, interprets it this way by saying, Jesus says, I don't want you to simply shift from one performance-based identity to another. I want you to find a whole new way. I want you to lose the old self, the old identity, and find your identity on me and the gospel. And so, friends, following him means dying to self with the goal of, of serving him and others. He has given himself completely to us, so how can we not do the same for him? You are not your own, you're his. So let's rethink the way we use our time this week. You are not your own, we're his. What would it mean for us to reframe our trials, uh, not simply to go into our cocoons and to hide, and, and I am tempted to do that when I'm hurting, but not to do that, but rather to look outward to fight that cocooning impulse and say, how can I minister to others as the Lord is ministering to me in my trials? That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. And Jesus is also giving us a warning. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
You see, this was written to Christians who were tempted to give up on Christ because of all the pushback they were receiving. And again, this is a real challenge that Christians in other parts of the world are facing. There are Christians in Ukraine, Christian leaders who are uh, reaching out to their brothers and sisters in Russia. And they're acknowledging that to speak out and to speak uh, the word of God, to discredit what is going on, could lead just simply by writing about it or speaking about it, could lead to three years in prison. It could lead to um, having to go to a labor camp. But the amazing thing is that more than 300 Russian evangelicals um, have responded to the challenge from their Ukrainian Christian colleagues. And they have written, the time has come when each of us must call things by their real names and prevent the collapse of our country to speak the word of God. And they stated this in an open letter that was signed by a group of pastors and leaders. They said, according to the word of God, we call on the authorities of our country to stop the senseless bloodshed. Now, the Lord might be calling us to different messages, different challenges, different issues. But those Christians are helping us to see that when we lose our lives for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and his gospel, we will save it not because of what we have done for ourselves, but because of what he has done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask, we ask that you would help us to see the, the deep and challenging call of this passage that, that Christians in other parts of the world right now are seriously reckoning with in a way that might cost them their, their freedom, in a way that might lead to real persecution. But God, as we are sitting here today in this country, we pray that we would also take up the call to discipleship, that we would deny ourselves and carry our cross, not to save ourselves, but because you have saved us. Help us to know that we are not our own. Therefore, our time, our resources, our houses, these things are not meant simply for us and our families, but also for others, for your kingdom. We pray that you would help us not to have the misunderstanding of the crowds, that, that we would try to take Jesus into our own framework and make him into a political leader or a military leader, but help us to see his agenda. Help us to see that he brought your reign and your power and your joy by dying on a Roman cross, by being humiliated for the salvation of the world. God, we thank you for your upside down kingdom, the paradox that your glory is established and shown by Jesus dying and suffering and being rejected, but eventually also rising for us. 
We pray that as we take his supper that we would be filled with strength and resolve and joy as we go out into this world carrying our crosses. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.